You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hi, everybody. Welcome once again to In Perspective. I am Bob Branco, and this is episode 304, dated Friday, April 14th, the year 2023. Before we continue, let me introduce Peter Alchil. Peter, what's going on today over in old Columbia, Missouri? It is another fabulous day in Columbia, 80 degrees and sunny. But on Sunday, the high is supposed to be 47 and raining. So, you know, we're still in April in Missouri. Well, that cold front's coming here too, Peter. It was 82 today. It's going to drop to about 50 by Patriots Day, which is Monday. So it's coming this way, that's for sure. Before we continue... Uh, let me thank those people who make it possible for In Perspective to be aired. Let's start out with Raymond Gay, our editor and producer. Thank you very much for what you do for us. We appreciate you. Also, Tom and Lynn from the Rosie's Place chat line. They post our shows on greeting door number 15. We appreciate that as well. Also, the media sources. Thank you for airing us when you do. And also to Jacqueline Sylvia, our website designer. She archives our programs on my website. Just go to www.brancoevents.com. Arrow down until you get to In Perspective Podcasts. Click on that, and you will see all of our archives from latest to earliest. Merci, Jackie. And I'd also like to thank Sheila Young, who has taken over race uh, spot uh, as facilitator or host or whatever the right word is. So, Sheila, I'm glad you're here to help us out. And I turn it back over to Bob. I echo Peter's sentiments, Sheila. Thank you for taking the time today in Ray's absence. Ray had something else to do. In fact, he's working. So that's why we have Sheila here today. Thank you very much, Sheila. We're going to be talking a lot about human humanitarianism today and also a little bit of magic as we have Brent Gifford. He's a blind magician. He's also an inventor, a creator and a personal communications specialist. You wear a lot of hats, Brent. I hope they all fit. Hello, Brent. Did we lose What happened Brent? to everybody? Did we lose Brent? Did we lose Brent? No, he's here. Well, he's muted. Or yes, something. he's muted. He's muted. All right. Brent, Brent you Well, I can unmute. talk some more about you, Brent, until you unmute. <laughs> You still there, Brent? Yes. There we are. There okay. you are. All right. Here I well, am. I was just Little saying, Brent, you wear a lot of hats, so I hope they all fit. Yeah, and I try not to wear them all at once because then I just fall over, um, which is kind of one of the things that uh, we talked about. Uh, moving, I moved about a year ago to this uh, from the coast of California inland an hour and north to a little place where – uh, we have lots of, uh, redwoods and sequoias. I'm a, I'm a tree guy. I come from Maine originally and I like primeval forest and there just happens to be some within a 20 minute drive of where I live now. Not to Brent mention and the I gra- blind. <laughs> yeah, go. Brent and I grad. Yeah, Brent. And I want to talk about that camp a little later on too, because you and I have had discussions about it in the past and I'm very impressed with what they do there. But I just wanted to let everybody know up front, Brent and I graduated from Perkins School for the Blind at the same time. 
back in 77. So I've known Brent for a long, long time. <laughs> Brent, I think the burning question that I have at the moment is, how did you become a blind magician and how does that work? Well, um, it's kind of weird. It works different now than it did when I did it. Um, I was 11 years old when I lost my sight. Uh, my retina is detached and I became automatically kind of low vision, uh, definitely even legally blind with my glasses and all that stuff. But, uh, I was the, a kid in the, in the, on, my family moved to the coast of Maine by that point in time, but I was in the hospital at Mass General, Mass Ioneer for so long, so many times in a, in a period that I, my family moved while I was in the hospital. So I went back to a place being blind that I had never been before and tried to fit in and be part of the family. And that didn't go so well. So they put me in art therapy classes, which saved my life. I think um, I learned a lot of things like sculpting and metal smithing and, you know, things that blind people can do without too much effort and realized that there wasn't much of a challenge in that. So at 12, I decided um, to get help from my art therapy teacher to, become a magician. My brother had tossed out the, the golden book of magic, which is, uh, oh, I should have it with me. It's on my bookshelf behind me. I still have that one book with me. Um, he tossed it in my toy box when we were kids. He's nine years older than I am. And he didn't, uh, magic required too many fingers for him, uh, to do. <laughs> and I said, this is what I want to do. You know, uh, the rest of it's all kind of incidental. I've been a shaman a little bit longer than I've been a performance magician. Um, and so the performance magician part came about because there weren't any blind magicians at the time. We're talking what, uh, this was before I came to Perkins. So it was like 50 70, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. 50, yeah Blindini uh, just turned 50 and I killed him. Uh, I had this alter ego named the great Blindini. I didn't know it was an alter ego till I got here and started having some mental issues. Um, I have PTSD from my upbringing and certain smells trigger it. Um, and there are fewer of those smells in Santa Rosa than there were in Santa Cruz, which is good. But when it gets me, it gets me. And I become sort of, uh, the psychiatrist said it's a dis- dissociative disorder. I'm like, okay, can you do something about it? He said, yeah, but it'll take a little time. I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. As long as I don't have to take more pills, I'm good. Um, but yeah, the magic was, it started out kind of as a, as a something to do. And then it turned into people would actually pay me to do it. And when, by the time I got to Perkins, um, I'd been studying for a couple of years and, gathering props and all that kind of stuff and finally decided to come out as a magician uh, and, and he was named the great blindini but the alter ego part he was also the safe place that i went when i was being uh abused as a child and i didn't know that you know i just named it the great blindini and didn't realize it was as the safe place so in the process of of laying the great blindini to rest we did a broken wand ceremony for him and the whole bit. And so now I have to talk about him in the third person all the time. Uh, well, Bob, I was I am, under the impression. 
I was under the impression that the great blind Dini was derived from Houdini. Well, it actually it came from a gag that uh Maine Magician Society uh had done years prior when I was a member there. And for just for giggles, we all like I was Brentini actually. Uh, for, you know, the first couple of years I was Brentini because everybody in the club just used their first names and put Dini after it. Uh, in, in homage to Houdini and Rohova. Yeah. So Blindini just sort of hit and it was a really, you know, it ended up being a relatively popular character. I got a lot of crap from NFB in the first place. Uh, but they finally kind of backed off once they realized I was, it was in humor. It wasn't done to make fun of blind people or whatever. I, I, did it to oh. put it out there that blind people can do whatever you can do. And, yeah, and, and you probably didn't have that in mind. This was your interest. No, not at all. I didn't. You know, for me, it's about entertaining people, right? Um, as far as how much practice goes. How much practice oh, did you do before you became a true full-fledged well, magician? Before I would call myself a magician, I probably put in about thirty-five hundred hours, give or take. More or less, I had a couple of sisters who would read to me out of uh, magic books from the library and a couple hours a day. You know, my, I had three sisters, two of whom read to me, and they traded off day to day at the time. Um, and they would read me the same trick over and over again until I got it, you know. Then I'd go away and practice a couple of days and come back and show it to them. they go, hey, where'd you learn that? I'm like, you just read it to me for the past month. Um, but it doesn't equate. For some reason, in brains, you know, you can read about a magic trick all day long, but when you see it, it may or may not relate to the stuff you just read if you don't know it or it was you just read. Magic books are written in in sort of a cryptic way such that if you haven't been studying the history, and that's a big part of it for me, too, is the history of magic, performance magic, Um and really, I did all of that to cover up my secret life as a shaman and healer and things of that nature. So, so, so Bob, uh, Bob, Bob, I have a question for you. Uh, you and Brent were together at Perkins for a while. What did you know about uh, Bob's, uh, sorry, Brent's uh, magic stuff while you were together? And how did that impact the way the two of you got to know each other? I didn't know a thing about it. We were just classmates. We were friends. We were cottage mates. Uh, I had no idea that this was Brent's uh, desire. Not at the time. I found out about that much later. So, Brent, how, how did how did Perkins sort of view your uh, foray into magic when when you were there? They were very. They were pretty supportive. I mean, I, I part of the deal is I was I was a resident student, right? Mm. So I didn't go home on weekends and all that kind of stuff. And I used that time to practice and to uh, go downtown Boston to visit the couple of magic stores that were there. And, uh, but I spent most of my time on the weekends, uh, studying the different, uh, religions and theocracies and things of that nature in Boston, uh, to add to my, to earth medicine side of my life to find out what people were doing in different religions. There were 285 different religions registered in 1975 in Boston. So I spent weekends going to all of these different places like the Quaker meeting house and things of that nature. And yeah, the people at Perkins generally, I mean, 
you know, most of the time I'm with other students my age, so it's not a big deal there. You know, I found Perkins to be a very supportive place to, to be, you know, to help me integrate into the world. I mean, that, that's what I assumed their goal was, is, is to help me integrate into the world. So that's the context under which I did most of the stuff. Um, very seldom did they ever uh, bring me up on anything occasionally because I, they, they misheard stuff I said, so they would reprimand me for that. But, uh, you know, outside of that. Eh. So with all the religions yeah. you explored, all the religions you explored back then, what, which religions hit you the hardest or the most, had the most influence on you at the time? Oh, um, I gotta say the Moonies. Uh, really? Just because they, I mean, as far as being out there, uh, the Moonies are just, mm, I even have a hard time calling it a religion, but, uh, it's, that's how they were listed because that's how you get a 501c3 tax exemption for your, Religion, right? You call it a religion. Um, and I, yeah, a lot of them had, had a kind of a different impact on me. I got the idea from Mr. Ackerman to do that. Um, cause he knew I was interested in, in TG and that part of the world. And he's like, yeah, so go here, here and here. And then we'll, you know, get a list and find out where the rest of them are. And I'm like, okay. And. He actually was a big help. Um, he was, I didn't get to really see Tony Ackerman either as a, as, as who he was until after I had left Perkins. And, uh, Just for the record, Tony yeah. Ackerman was our oh. English instructor and he was also director of drama club at Perkins. Interesting. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. That's interesting. Kismet, that was awesome. <laughs> so, I got out of being on stage by being the stage manager with Carl Lenquist. <laughs> that kind of surprised me because obviously if you're a magician, you perform, you have to be on stage all the time. Right? Oh yeah. All the time. But this was like a choral thing. And yeah, I mean, we did, we did musicals and stuff, which were really cool. I think I was in Blythe Spirits when I was there. I was the judge. You were also, no, you were no, also in, uh, a night of January 16th. Of January you played 16th, the judge. Yep. Yep. That was fun too. I liked having the black robe and the gavel. It was cool. Um, <laughs> It, and, gives, uh, it gives the term blind justice a new name, right? Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good yeah. one, Peter. Thank you. That was, that was good. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you, so you left Perkins and, and what did you do? How did you, how, what did you do next? Sort of how did you uh, like? <laughs> what I did next was have mono and stay at a friend's house for about three months. Well, <laughs> and then I came back to Watertown, uh, to find a place to live because I, Started working for Kurzweil Computer Products is what it was called at the time. Bob was familiar with that as well. Um, we were the Very guinea pigs so. at, yeah, initially to use the reading machine. We were we were two of the first ten guinea pigs. Right, and then so I went and got paid by the company to keep doing it. Uh, <laughs> so I spent uh, like a year, year and a half. Uh, we were they were based out of MIT at the time like a garage at the end of the campus, but it was still on MIT. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing because it's like sitting there listening to mechanical speech for eight hours a day becomes, I think that's kind of where some of my mental illness might have come from. Uh, it, it was not the voices we have today, obviously, but, uh, 
I have a friend who's a fellow magician who is the head of speech synth at Apple now. And so I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, so that's why I was asking Sue about that. If she'd seen him lately, she's like, nothing forever, but, uh, oh, sorry, Sue Bennett, voice of Siri. Um, after she said that thing about the collection of all the different people's voices and stuff, I had to go see it. So I did. Um, and Kim's office has a, where everybody else would have books, a, a wall lined with books. He's got a wall lined with, um, like uh, flash drives and, uh, disc matter and all this kind of, all of which is different voices that people have called in and, and done their part to create new Siri voices and, Technically, my job is to to make her angry, whoever is being Siri at the time. We're trying to get more disgusted size and things like that out of her rather than uh, actual language. So uh, that's that's what we're working on at Apple anyway. Because um, after, no, you know, so, you can so, ask her the city. Go ahead. Working synthesized voices. How did magic tie into all of this? I, magic has opened the door for me to go do things that I wanted to do in my life uh, as opposed to just being another blind guy that shows up and says, Hey, I'd like you to put me to work in your circuit, sir. Um, you know, I, that's where Blindini came in. Blindini was the, was safe and my protection. And he, me, uh, did a lot of, of crazy stuff just to prove blind people could do it. And I think, it served me while I was the great Blandini, and now I'm just uh, having a hard time accessing that part of my psyche at the moment, but I'm getting back. Um, I had to go off the grid for like two weeks, um, uh, doctor's orders. Uh, so I, I think I kind of scared Bob because I was like, yeah, here's the deal, <laughs> but I'll be there on Friday. So, um, so the question is, I, as a magician, I got invited to a lot of things that I wouldn't have gotten invited to otherwise. I got to be in performances with, you know, big name professionals and I got to, to open for Stevie Wonder and things of that nature. Um, simply because he was a friend of a friend and out here in the blindness world. And, uh, so yeah, so the magic, the performance magic side of me is to gain entree to the things I want to do or the people I want to be with. A couple of magic tricks go a long way towards people, you know, listening to the other stuff that you might have to say. So I kind of use it as a tool (laughs) to get invited to places and to do conventions. Uh, I've done the NOAA convention like four times. National Organization of Albinism and Hyperpigmentation. Hypopigmentation, sorry. Uh, that's a fairly large convention. Um, and again, friends of a friend. I magician and I did childcare for a day and a half and had a great time. So Do you have a website, friend? Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, not yet. <laughs> We're working on it. Um going to rebrand and the whole bit uh, in the middle of May. Um, and you'll get all the information and the website is being worked on as we speak by another couple who, uh, one of them is blind and her husband does most of their web work and he's working on mine. Uh, 
you had him as guest a while back. Uh, now I can't even remember the name off the top of my head. Couple. Obi Whittler. Uh, Obi. No, Hobie. Hobie, oh. I talk to all the time. I mean, Hobie's like just down the street. So I see Hobie. This, this is the young couple. They sounded young anyway. The lady speaks seven languages and her husband, oh. they, they were English majors together or whatever. It was, I, it was a couple months ago now. Anyway, I, I got in touch with them and, and asked what they were doing about their website. And they said, oh, we're, we just sent it out to so-and-so. I'm like, okie dokie. That's all I needed to know. <laughs> and so, so Brent, I, I'm curious. You, you, you talked about sort of the connection between shamanism and magic to you. And yes. so talk about that and talk about how yeah. and how you, how that sort of ties into who you are and the presentations you make and all of that. Okay. Yes. Um, it's kind of, uh, I don't know. I, I was awoke, I was woken up when I was six years old by, uh, my first teacher. And I think I was, yeah, I was six. I was walking home from school past his house and just, I knew the guy. I didn't know much about him, you know, but, uh, he came out on his lawn one day and waited for me to come by and he said, do you know me? And I'm like, well, I mean, I know you're David Bell and you live in this house and that kind of stuff. And he's like, no, do you recognize me? I'm like, am I supposed to? And he's like, look at my eyes. And at the time I had, you know, one eye, but I got the idea and I looked in his eyes and I went, oh, it's you. Okay. Um, and so I became the 32nd person in this line of healers. And he gave me the oral history of the first 30 generations and set me on my path to go practice earth medicine and energy medicine and things of that nature. And, uh, he, he was diagnosed with cancer, of the endocrine system when he found me, um, and they'd given him like six months to live. So he kind of felt a little pressure to make sure he found me before he died. Then he spent six years relating the oral history of our line. So he lived for six years instead of six months, just to prove a point. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't use chemo or any of that kind of stuff. He just lived another six years. And what do you, uh, what do you, what do you think, uh, prolonged his life? The, he, he set it up that way. I mean, to be perfectly candid, I think that he had to have something to keep his attention away from being sick, right? Away from the cancer. And so he chose me to do that with. Um, and I've been part of hospice. Yeah. My, my title inside the tribe that I just joined is Skinwalker. Um, basically I'm a, I'm a portal manager for babies being born and people who are dying and crossing the rainbow bridge. And I also do hospice for pediatric hospice, uh, because most of the people can't, just can't do it. And, uh, it's not easy. I will give it that. And I've eaten, I've even had to take a break now for a little while. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the shaman side is, uh, working with, new entries and people who are departing and everybody in the middle, I get to help uh, promote that, I guess, for lack of a better way. Um, I've, I've attended I don't know, close to 3000 people dying 
And one way or another, I've been with them when they died or I had coached them through the process of dying, which there is one of. And, uh, yeah. And, and that's what I do when I'm not magician. That, that's the coming out is, is the part. My secret life as a shaman is now what I'm exposing to the world since I've you also, Brent, Brent, you also are very familiar with, and I think you might help to run this camp for the blind, which I'm very impressed with. <laughs> you and I had a discussion. We had a discussion about this on another venue, and the <laughs> things that you described at this camp for the blind were extremely heartwarming and impressive. First of all, do you run that camp, and where is it, and what happens there? Um, well. It's uh, Enchanted Hills Camp for the Blind on the side of a mountain in Napa, California. So the mountain is Mount Veter, and the camp is 400 acres. And I don't know, we, we tried counting the number of redwoods and stuff, but we had a big fire there three years ago, and it made it a lot easier to count yeah. after the fact. Um, but we managed to save uh, 900 of the trees that had been damaged in the fire one way or another and turn them into board feet that we are used to build the new buildings with that the fire took out. So we're actually building a second camp uh, in what's called lower camp. And it's like ultra modern. The whole camp is, is, uh, has a, once we're done, it's going to be the state of the art camp for the blind on the planet because we're, we're, we don't have guide ropes for one thing because we're using it as a teaching facility the rest of the year or renting it out to corporate uh, the rest of the year. And it is one of the most amazing places on the planet. It's really where I think of myself at home when I'm there. I'm not the director. I'm, I'm a, I've, I've been there 25 years. I started as a camp counselor the same day that the man who is director now started as director. So we've sort of been through this journey together and trained a lot of young people about how to, how to manage other people and how to lead and the difference between leadership and management, things of that nature. But the camp itself has a ton of redwoods. We just finally got the pool fixed. So it's last year we had session, but we didn't have a pool. And this year we do. And so that changed the number of participants. We have 10 sessions this summer. Most summers we have 10 sessions. A couple of them are family camp uh, where either the kids are blind and the rest of the family comes with them or the parents are blind and the rest of the family comes with them. And those are done on week after week. Uh, that's how, how long are the sessions? Uh, depends on the session. Uh, the family camps are, I think, four days each with a day in the middle and then adult camp is uh seven days this year we got a day back from another group uh <laughs> that's that's how it comes down we have to you know it's kind of like a bidding process for how many people want to come win and that kind of stuff but um, and, and what is your role at this camp right now you started as a counselor um, what do you what do you do oh, now i am i am the i am the camp shaman now Ah. And I'm, I'm working with the historian because the place has been something, uh, since 1850. It used to be a resort where people from the city, San Francisco, would come up 
to Santa Rosa on the train, I mean to, to Napa on the train, and then a horse and buggy would meet them at the train station and climb the side of this mountain with these rich people in it that were taking the waters at Enchanted Hills Camp. And we have we have some photographic evidence of some of the people uh that came, you know, that were like a little bit later, like in the 1890s. And uh it's just uh, the energy that is there really got dissipated by the fire and then by the the subsequent having to rebuild and things of that nature. But we're building back stronger and bigger. And uh, I, yeah, I would invite any of you to go to ehc.org and look it up. It's, of course, accessible. Um, I've been running into some non-accessible websites lately, and I'm not quite clear why, because everybody and their mother just got to push a button <laughs> to get the, the accessible software onto anything they're producing. It's not that hard. Well, but, appa- apparently it is hard because a lot of people are yeah, apparently it is. I understand. Making, making it happen. But anyway, that's another conversation. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a question. I want to go back to something else you talked about. Uh, sort of a sure. so You talked about uh, shaman being sort of a life-giving force, correct? If I, you know, correct. You, you're a healer. Yeah. And you talk a lot about your work it would, w- w- about um, getting people uh, uh, over the bridge, as it were, the, the, the mm-hmm. Rainbow Bridge, in a presumably yes. in some So talk about because I'm sort of interested because you know usually healing most people view healing as life, right? You know, usually yes. healing is not death. How do you sort of square the two? Um, sort of healing, healing and death. Whenever you take your first breath. There's only one guarantee that eventually you will take a last breath. And my job is to help take that first breath and help take that last breath. And in the middle, my job is to help people understand that dying isn't nearly as painful as they're looking ahead to do. We do these things called the death cafe. Uh, where we have people fill out their five wishes forms. Uh, uh, it's a, uh, oh, what the heck's it called? Well, five wishes is what we call it, but it's a, it's a bucket list maybe or sort of, sort of a No, closet. it's the other way around. It's, it's what you want to have done to you oh, if you're unconscious and can't, uh, you know, and in California, we're now a right to die state. Mm-hmm. So you can actually take yourself out if you do it by a prescribed methodology. I don't assist people in suiciding i will assist somebody if they get all the permissions that they're supposed to from the psych and the, you know the doc and stuff like that but that's not really what i'm here for i'm here to help your transition be as uh joyful and uh not as as not frightening as possible let's put it that way um every case is a little different some people are, are really just ready to go and there are some people that uh, usually hospice gives you six months when you go on service. And some people have been re-upped a couple of times because they didn't die nearly as soon as we thought they were going to. They just were able to live past all of the symptoms. And I think you're having had that. Pers- you're listening to In Perspective. I'm Bob Branco, and my co-host is Peter Alcho. And we're here with Brent Gifford. He's a blind magician, a humanitarian, communication specialist, inventor. I want to get into some 
aspects of your inventing if we have time. But I do at this point want to invite the participants to come in and ask you whatever they'd like. So let me ask Sheila if if there are any hands raised. You do, Musi. Musi. Yes, you are an interesting dude. (laughs) Trying to be. (laughs) What? How did you dress as a musician, and how much equipment did you use? And you're uh, retired from being musician, a magician, a right? Magician, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, it depends on the period of time because, like, I spent two years um, living on a Greyhound bus, basically, with a duffel bag that was my magic show, and another one that was my clothing and you know toiletries and that kind of stuff. And I would go to a show in a school district because I was working for an agency. That's all they did was book school assemblies. Yeah, too bad that one's gone. Uh, but they um, they would tell me, you know, I would call Dallas where the office was and ask them where I needed to be tomorrow. I, like I'd be in Kansas City and did three or four scoops, you know, schools in that district and have the principal of the last school I perform at each time take me to the bus station. Then I would call the guys in Dallas and they would tell me where I needed to be tomorrow. So then I'd just get a ticket for, or, or get a trailway ticket depending on what it, where it was, but all the bus stations are usually fairly close to each other. So I would ride overnight to whatever the other destination is in the morning. So I'd go find a Y or something like that to shower and get ready. And my costuming was, uh, fairly, uh, let's say, Flamboyant, I guess, for lack of a better term, <laughs> as part of part of the act. Because one of the reasons I became a magician, realistically, one of the reasons is because I love the costumes, mm-hmm. and I I I'm one of those, you know, the purple sequin tailcoat, and uh, I've been I've been collecting flamingo stuff all during COVID to try and work it into the show now. So I've got a bunch of flamingo stuff that I'm not quite sure what to do with yet, but. I'm, I'm getting there. Um, so the next show is going to be like off the, uh, stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm going into the funny part as opposed to the, the, the serious part of being a magician. Uh, I came here to learn from a couple of guys that were the best, Carl Ballantyne back in the day, uh, and Orman McGill also back in the day. All of my mentors are croaked. And so now I'm stuck being the mentor. So yeah, that's how it goes. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Um, It's all about the bling. (laughs) There you go. Sheila. But that's all. Is that, is that the, is that the only hand up right now? Yes, sir. Okay. So what I would ask, we'll we'll continue the conversation, but if somebody does raise their hand and you're welcome to raise your hand anytime, Sheila, feel free to let us know, Sheila. And we'll, and we'll, uh, we'll, 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 we'll take the question. Will do. Okay. Thank you. So before we, we move on to your inventor role, I, I, uh, we were talking about the whole issue of, you know, making it more soulful oh. and, and, and easy to die. I wanted to sort of share an experience I heard from a pastor and, and sort of get your reaction to it. So this was a pastor who was in a hospital and the, and the person was really, you know, really was ready to die as far as I can, as I remember the story, mm-hmm. but was, un, but was unwilling to sort of take that step, whatever that step was, was, and so the pastor, uh, took the woman's hand and said, "It's time to go now. It's time to leave. You've lived a you lived a life. It's time to go." And the woman died. Yeah, it was just that sort of push. Is that is that familiar? It's as easy as that. Yes, it is. When they're when they're 
in the there is a process to dying and some of us have been trained to spot it right especially if they're on hospice or whatever um we know they're dying but um there is a place where i remove all of the family and friends from the room so that i can talk directly to the person whether they're seemingly conscious or not i talk to them about they can see where they're going and see this. This is what I tell them. You know, look out there. See that circle? See all of your friends in that circle? See that space in that circle of friends? That's your space. So it's time to go be with your friends and family. And more often than not, that's the speech they get just before they take their last breath. And that works nine times out of 10. I'm also a hypnotherapist, a clinical hypnotherapist. Let's put it that way. Um, I don't, I don't do stage hypno, but I do things to help people along with behavior, modern hypnosis, uh, to make life changes that they just can't do on their own. So, uh, so yeah, I help, I help the living live and I help the dying die. What can I say? That's, that's, it's, it's really interesting to me. Uh, it's just a, it's a thing I hadn't really thought through very carefully. I mean, I know that there's a whole, you know, thing about death and theory behind it, but you know, uh, anyway, I, Bob, you want to talk about, uh, invention or something? What did you, what's it that you want to sort of, uh, move oh, to? Oh, yeah, that's, that's another one of those yeah, things. The, I do. Brent is an inventor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Brent, the inventor. Okay, Brent the Inventor. I have a number of uh, magic texts. It, it always comes back to one or the other, either the magic or the shamanism. Um, I have a bunch of magic texts from the 1920s and 30s that have formulas in them for all kinds of different stuff. Uh, and not the least of which is what I'm concentrating on at the moment is a intumescent house paint. Doesn't burn. Won't burn. Can't burn. But all of the ingredients in the powder that you put in your house paint are natural, are green, are, you know, the the couple of flame retardant treatments that are out there either have Teflon or some other thing that uh, creates uh, a nuisance for people. And like if if their house gets, a, you know, hit by something hard and it'll crack the surface, I went past that. I, I went with stuff that would be able to take it and I have a sponsor to, that's, that's waiting for me to finish this, uh, to, to, so that we, we have to see what it's going to take to scale it up, but it's only got four ingredients and they're all green and people are like losing their minds when they watch me demonstrate it because I'll like smear it on my hand and then set my hand on fire, um, which doesn't actually work because it's got this stuff on it. So then I put something flammable in my hand and set it on fire. <laughs> and I've, because I've already smeared my magic goo on it, that is fireproof. Turns out, uh, you know, some of the stuff isn't even available anymore. Used to be, you could just go in and get cocaine over the counter, right? You know, this right, is, right, right. that was that kind of world then. And so all of these books about fire magic and fire eating and sword swap, and I learned all that junk as a kid, you know, and ancillary uh, ways of entertaining people, uh, driving spikes up my nose and, you know, sideshow stuff. Anyway, um, this intermittent 
uh, it started out as a, as a gag because I just wanted to prove it could be done. And then a friend of mine who runs a, owns a company that called Green Builders and they build houses that are, uh, they're really weird. Uh, they got like giant styrofoam Legos inside the walls that have holes in them to run electrical and all that stuff. And then there's a concrete shell that goes around the outside of it. And the inside, you just drywall up like normal. But anything you can paint with my admix in it, you will be fireproof up to 6,000 degrees for up to three hours. And what's the cost mm-hmm. of this paint compared to your, your sort of standard nickel and dime paint? Or do you it's know yet? It's probably going to be an extra seven or eight bucks a gallon. And, and <laughs> if you get larger quantities, it'll be less, of course, but right. You know, just to try it out, you know, I think we're going to, we're going to offer quarts of it initially just to see how that, you know, if it's where I live now, there was also a massive fire five years ago. So I've even left fire out of my magic show because of it. Cause people around here are just so fractious about seeing any flames at this point. Um, I live just beyond the burn scar. So, um, I live in a brand new house, but it's uh, in a rental park. And so uh everybody that's here, most of them have been here uh quite a while. I mean, it's a, it's a 55 and up uh facility. And, but I can look over my back fence and see where the fire was five years was ago. Was that a wildfire? You, yeah, I came into town. I mean, it started in the woods. Uh, Started in those same <laughs> Sequoia and Redwood. That didn't burn so much. I mean, we, we've seen some of the burnt scars, burn scars on the trees, but Redwoods and Sequoias have resin, not sap, and it's fireproof too. Uh, so that's what I didn't realize that until I really started paying attention to what I was doing with the chemistry part and Dr. Hobie's helpful around that too. When I have chemistry questions, I call Dr. Hobie. Uh, Hobie yeah, Dr. Rose. Hobie's also an inventor. The two of you have that in common. Yes, he's well. also an inventor. He's, yes, yeah, he, he calls himself too. a culinary entrepreneur and he's helping me, uh, cause he didn't understand what I, when the heat hits my stuff, it turns into, uh, I used to call it a grill brick. It's like a carbon foam, basically. It foams up and has so many little air pockets in it that the flame can't get through. Um, so- that's so if, if if I were to buy your paint and I lived in a uh-huh. in a fire in a fire zone and God forbid another wildfire came through and I painted my house using your stuff, would my house be safe or safer uh than Yes. It would be safer than standard house paint or than like my my biggest issue at the moment is not the paint. I think that'll work. I don't have too much trouble with that, but uh like say I've got a deal with patent and all that stuff. But my sponsor is taking care of all that. So he's paying for the patent and or the process. Um, and, and, and just for clear, just for clarification, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. the color green, but I assume this works with any color, right? You can use this with yes, any no, color. This is, yeah. yeah, I'm I'm just providing the powder you can put in your house paint, whatever color it is. Right. That's right. the tricky part was being able to cross between latex and oil-based paint. That's that changed the, the ingredients that I was using when I first started putting it in 
the different types of paint. So I kind of pivoted and put a couple other ingredients in place of and still trying to maintain the echo friendly part. Um, and it depends on where the fire starts, to be perfectly honest. If it's a wildfire or whatever, your house will be protected, but your roof might get it. Ah, and so that's yeah. my next thing. There, there, we do have roofs here that, uh, that are fire retardant, I guess, for lack of a better mm-hmm. term. And we put that roof on our main lodge at camp from the blind uh, about six weeks prior to the wildfire that wiped out the camp. The dining hall and the grape crushing shed were all that were left. We had, we had a guy just finished building an amphitheater. We hadn't even seen it yet or performed on it. And the wildfire came and turned it into a pile of dust. And, uh, that was very discouraging for a lot of us, but, um, coming back stronger than ever. And that's where I got the idea for making the fireproof formula in the first place was at the camp because they're all vulnerable out there, obviously. Um, so, uh, as part of this campaign to, uh, finish producing and getting it patented and stuff like that, I'm testing it on a couple of the buildings at camp just to see how it goes because they're not here. They've been through a major fire. Um, and there's less likely to be a major fire there in the near future because of it, but the firefighters uh, still don't understand because the fire ran exactly in the opposite direction than they knew it should. And we're still in, we're still in negotiations about that because in the process, we inherited a Girl Scout camp across the road from where our camp is. So uh, it doubled our camp to have like 850 acres. Um, uh, and once they start building stuff on that side of the road, uh, all of it's going to have the fireproof uh, formula on it, whether it changes the color. It, it won't change the color. I have a clear version, too. You can just spray on the outside of your house. Oh, um, yeah. And once it dries, it's it's there for good. And it will keep your home safe from fire. So uh, before I'm, we before we end the show, I want to uh, I, I want to sort of make a sharp turn uh, before I do that, <laughs> Sheila, uh, any hands raised? No, sir. Okay, thank Too you, Sheila. I, mm-hmm. I appreciate oh, well. it. But, but that's okay. But I have a question for you. So I, I'm just curious. I mean, you, 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 you're, you're visually impaired. You have a, oh, yeah. you have a PTSD uh, diagnosis. How do you mm-hmm. think your, your disability has played into all the stuff you're doing, whether it be the shamanism or the inventor stuff or your team building stuff? How do you think your disability is, uh, what roles it played? Um, losing my sight saved my life. Uh, I was like, I lost my sight when I was 11 and 12. Um, you know, I had to go through both eyes and a third one on my right eye and stuff. Um, and then went back to the, to rural Maine where they had no services and really just didn't understand. Um, and they tried to help me by mainstreaming me. This is just long ago and far away now, but. Uh, they wouldn't let me take classes that I wanted to take, like introduction to physical science, because they use Bunsen burners. Mm-hmm. And they knew who I was. They've seen my show, right? Half of it. And you know, Brent, we use Bunsen burners at Perkins. 
I know. And that's what I'm saying. It's like it, <laughs> a lot of things in public school, they wouldn't let me do because I was blind. They made me take conversational French instead of regular French just because they didn't have to deal with me that way. You know, you put on a set of headphones and mimic back whatever you hear for an hour and then you go to the next class. And that's what they did for me would be. So uh my guidance counselor at the time realized that Perkins existed and I needed to be there. And so he worked out a deal with the school district in Maine that I was present going to. And Ben Smith, who was director at the time, and uh my mother uh emancipated me so that um I was my own person at fourteen years old and not that a member of the wrong. family anymore. And so I came to Perkins and they taught me what I needed to know to be this crazy person that I am out in the world. And Peter, you do have a hand raised when you have a minute. Let's 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 take, take it, let's Sheila. Take Who question. is it? Thank you, thank you, Sheila. Yeah, sure. Beth. Beth. Hi. Yeah. Welcome. I think this. I think this is fascinating. I've always been interested in magic and uh, um, things like this, but then you get backlash from the Christian Christianity <laughs> people. You yes, know. You do. <laughs> and. Oh, to the point where I'm very bored with church now. <laughs> yeah. Well, There's well, a great talk, Episcopal church in Texas. <laughs> so, so talk Did about I? that. Uh, talk about that a little bit, Brent, about your, your relationship with Christianity, if any. I mean, you know, it's clearly. Oh, yeah. Just, well, this is, a, this is a competition. I mean, you know, shamanism yeah. is a big, is a big deal. How, how do you, actually, what do you make of that? Um, well, I am ordained in the spiritualist church and I'm also have an ordination from a non-sectarian church uh, or group of churches called the science of mind. And who asked you anyway, uh, my <laughs> Miss A is uh, telling me I have a message. Um, Miss A, we call her that so she doesn't get set off. I call her the A lady, but it's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, Say. So I, how I am about it? Is that really the question? Is like I was so curious personally. about, about I, I, yeah. I mean, I mean, sort of. It, it's clearly, a yeah. Question, you know, yeah. No, I I do have a relationship to Christianity and the spirit. I mean, I'm not technically a spiritualist anymore, as far as that goes. I don't belong to the any of the churches or whatever. Um, but uh, I grew up in the Methodist Church uh, as a kid in the woods of Maine. And so, uh, Christianity has always been there for me as far as a place to go if I need it. Um, I just well, have well, a Brent, little bit uh, of... Speaking of that, yes. here's where I'll try to make a connection. Now, when you work with people who are dying or in mm-hmm. hospice, do you refer to God often? Oh, yeah, all the time. Oh, good. I mean, yes, that's, that's part of, part of the, Part of the process. I mean, you know, uh, when I'm with my Native American tribe, uh, indigenous people, whatever you want to call them, uh, it's great spirit, our mother earth, our father sky. We, we have certain ways of, of respecting everything, but it all is overseen by the great spirit. 
which would be God in this case. Um, and depending on the person's uh, religious upbringing, if they had one, um, it's that's actually a good thing to note when I'm helping them mm-hmm. uh, because it's one of those really weird things because I used to teach uh, EMS, uh, advanced first aid and EMS stuff. I can't be an EMT myself, but I can train them and have been trained to train them <laughs> and do. Um, but it's really kind of uh, weird. I, when I started training the EMTs and they got to work and they came back and he said, do you know that if you get to them first and they're dying, you need to give them last rites? I'm like, I hadn't even considered that. But uh, it turns out it's a thing. So, uh but last rites is a, is a, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is primarily a Catholic thing? Uh, primarily a Catholic thing, yes. But, but not, there are other, it's not, there are other religions that has that too. Other, yeah, other it's religions. a sacrament. It's a sacrament. And the Catholic a, Church a, it is, but, but in other faith communities it's not. Uh, and I assume in, in some, some it is as well beyond Catholic yeah. Catholicism. Yeah, there are a couple other, uh, I want to call them non-sectarian <laughs> Whatever. I, I, mean, I had a friend who was a Buddhist, lifelong Buddhist, and he ended up getting a glioblastoma, which is a inoperable brain tumor, and it takes you out within a week to a month. And during that time, we had to put him in a sniff, uh, skilled nursing facility because he was incapacitated to some extent, but he could still talk to me for some reason. And he was scared to death. I mean, he spent all his life waiting to die so he could recycle and be a better Buddhist, you know. And we were all helping him do what he needed to do. And then he just got scared to death of death when he'd been looking forward to it all his life. And so because he could hear me and not the rest of him, I had to explain it to him a little bit that if we just walk away, it's time for you to go and it's no problem. Don't, don't be scared. See, look over there. And that's, I always invoke, uh, sight. Look over there. See that? Um, and that one just came from experience. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I hang out in the blindness community, but I also hang out in the community community and they can see. So they don't have any, a lot of times they don't know I can't. Um, my two guide we, dogs. Um, been, we have about one more minute to go. I didn't know if there were any more hands raised, but if not, we can just wrap it up and Brent, you can give us some final thoughts. Sure. No, you don't have any hands. So, for, so uh, okay, last, Sheila. Here's my last Hold question for, for you, Brent. Uh, yeah. Uh, what advice would you give to your 25 year younger self? Um, look both ways before you cross the street. I've gotten myself into more just ridiculous projects that, that were nothing outside of self gratification and they turn out to be kind of uh, a wash. So I've learned to work with uh, groups of people. That's where the interpersonal communication thing comes in. I do my best to keep an entourage at all times um, for that reason. Um, sometimes I need help and there's no sighted person around. I teach all of my blind friends how to do shit to help me do. Mm-hmm. That way they can do it for well, each other. 
Well, you know, Brent, you are leading a very full life, and you're helping a lot of people, and that's wonderful. I commend you for what you do. Uh, You're serious when you have to be, and you're funny when you have to be, and that's great. But the time is up for this edition of In Perspective, and I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to appear on our program. We really appreciate what you had to say. You have a lot of wisdom. And I appreciate you doing this, Bob. You've done this. What, 300 and what? How many shows now? Um, this is number 304, and next month it'll be our sixth anniversary. Very good. That's, and and all the other stuff you do, too. I mean, I, I well, really thanks. commend you for, for doing what, you know, it's, it seems to me like you're passionate about that. And I, well, thank you I very get much, that Brent, when I hear from uh, you. So. Peter, Peter's done a lot of good Peter's, things. Yeah, well. and I, Peter's you know, done a lot really of great has. stuff, too. Yeah, I get that next when I'm on week. the Next Next week week. on our program, we're going to have, back again, Congressman John LeBoutlier. So that should be a fascinating political show. We have him on quite often. I want to thank Peter. I want to thank Brent, of course, our participants, and Sheila for filling in as our host today. We really appreciate your efforts, and we'll talk soon, and go safe with God's abundant blessings. Have a nice week, everybody.